Please turn with me in the Gospel according to Mark, chapters 15 and 16. I'd like to begin reading where we focused on Friday evening at the darkness, at Mark 15, verse 33, and then read through into chapter 16 where we hear the resurrection account. Mark 15, at verse 33, Christ Jesus is on the cross. He's been on the cross for three hours. It's now the sixth hour, which is noon. We hear God's word. Mark 15, 33, now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Elioi, Elioi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the last and of Joses, and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now when evening had come, because it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he bought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. 
He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. God's word. Let's ask the Lord to bless us in our hearing of the word this morning, shall we? Oh God in heaven, how thankful we are to have the inspired record, so we need have no doubt. But what we read is the truth told to us by the one who saw and who knows all things. We thank you for your spirit who inscribed these words, and we pray that he'd write them upon our hearts now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Congregation of Christ, we focus upon this glorious resurrection account or the witnesses to what has happened here in Mark 16. And as we do it this morning, I'd like to set before you three points. Mark sets before us at least three points. First of all, the fact of the resurrection. And secondly, the the comfort of the resurrection for us sinners. And then finally, the, the transformation of our service to Christ that comes through the resurrection. Now, the fact of the resurrection is very important. And we've all heard the account of the Easter morning. I suppose there's probably no one here who hasn't. If there was anyone here this morning who, this is the very first time you've ever heard the news that the Son of God in human flesh who died for sinners, dead on a cross, put in a tomb, has been raised from the dead. This would be a glorious day, wouldn't it? To hear that for the first time. But for most of us, we've heard it many times, many times, and we've heard it so often that sometimes we just pass on by the details and it becomes almost a sort of a a fairy tale in our minds that sort of floats there, uh, not very distinct or specific. But Mark nails down details because he wants us to know this, this happened. This is history. This is hard facts. He, he names three women. He tells us of Mary Magdalene, Mary from Magdala on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, Mary out of whom Jesus had cast the seven demons. She was in a bad state. And he tells us about the, the other Mary, the Mary... Uh, mother of James and Joseph. And he tells us about Salome. She was the mother of James and John. And Marcus told us in chapter 15 that these ladies were with other ladies standing near or at a distance from the cross and observing the torturous death of the Lord Jesus. And Mark tells us that two of these ladies actually witnessed Joseph of Arimathea taking that limp body of Jesus and lying him in a, in a tomb. So these are real women like the woman sitting in front of you or behind you. These are ladies with a name, with an identity, who were there. And after waiting the Sabbath on the first day of the week, Sunday morning, they're up early, and they're making their way out of the city of Jerusalem, down the streets, and out through the city gate. And their faces certainly were not smiles. They had Somber faces. They were going to a cemetery. And they were bracing their hearts to look upon the corpse of their beloved Jesus. And what are they going there to do? They're going to the tomb to finish the work. To finish the work. They had, they'd seen Joseph rather hastily take that, that lifeless body of Jesus and wrap it up and get it in the tomb before the Sabbath came. But they knew it wasn't enough. 
those days, there was kind of a twofold process of burial. The body would first be laid in the tomb upon the, the stone shelf cut out in the, in the tomb, and, and it would rest there until it decayed, and all that was left was the bones. And then much longer time later, they would take those bones and gather them, put them in a box, and put them deeper in the tomb. But you see, in the first stage, when the body lies there, it was custom to wrap that body, not just in linen, but with all kinds of ointment and fragrance to cover the scent of death. And so they're on the way to do what Joseph did not have time to do. They want to give Jesus a proper burial. They want to wrap that body up with lots of fragrance and spices to hide the smell of decay. And and this will be their last act of love and devotion for the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not much they can do, but we can do this for him. And yet as they're making their, their way to this tomb, It dawns on one of them that they saw perhaps Joseph roll this stone in front of the tomb. And that's how how tombs were built in that day, with a kind of channel in front of the tomb that they would roll a slab of stone, a disc in front of. And it was easy to get it in, but it was hard to get it out. And who's going to roll away the stone? Well, maybe somebody will be around. Maybe somebody will be passing by. We can get a man to help us. But no sooner they come upon the tomb and discover that the stone's rolled Away, it's thrown out of its groove there, and and their hearts are wondering. And they go into the tomb. And to their amazement, there's somebody inside calmly waiting for them. A young man. More than a young man. He's he's wearing a, a long white robe. And they... They're startled. What is this? That that in this tomb of death, a a heavenly light, a messenger from above is here. It's very disturbing. And the angel says to them, calm down. Don't, don't be afraid. I know why you're here. You've come for Jesus of Nazareth. But you know what? He's not here. He's risen. Yeah, just, just look at the shelf here where he was laid. There's no body, is there? He's not here. Go tell his disciples he's going to meet them in Galilee. And the women, they don't need a further invitation. You can imagine them slowly backing out of the tomb, slow motion turning around, and then their legs taking off, running, running, their heads spinning back to the city, back through the gate, down through the streets of Jerusalem, People turning their heads at these grown women running with faces white. It's something of that picture that Mark paints for us here. An event. An event of discovery that followed the event of the resurrection. And we we have to grasp something of the, the fear and the bewilderment of these sisters at this most shocking manifestation of heaven's glory in an angel, but but even more so in the message the angel proclaims that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. It's a real event. Mark records the time of day, the discussion the women had on the way, the spices they prepared, the fear they experienced, the angel they saw. This was an event of history. This happened. Now, some have suggested that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not an event that occurred, But it's sort of a metaphor for the experience in the hearts of the disciples that that they had new hope, that they felt something inside them now. 
Some have suggested that the physical resurrection of Jesus doesn't matter, but what matters is that Jesus lives in your heart. Well, anyone who says that has not taken the Bible seriously when it says Christ arose, but secondly, they have failed to recognize that salvation hangs upon the resurrection of Jesus. Because you remember the apostle says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not raised, then our preaching is empty, and so is your faith. If Christ is not risen, you are still in your sins. Because if he's still under the power of death, then it means that sin has not been paid for. Christ is still suffering its penalty. But the good news, the apostle says, is that Christ is risen. He's been raised from the dead and the world is forever changed. He's not here. He's risen. See the place where he was laying? Nothing there. The glorious reality. As real as the death of Jesus, and no one, no one was unsure of the death of Jesus, right? From the centurion to the Jews, the, the, the Jewish leaders to the Jewish people and the disciples of Jesus. Everyone, everyone knew it was a cold, hard fact he died. What the Bible says, just as solid a fact, he has risen to a new existence, never to die again. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, Jesus says. And he holds in his hand the keys of death and Hades. He has won the victory over his people. Sin and death and Satan have no power. Christ has paid the full debt to God's justice, and he has the power to set us free forever. Do you notice at the end of this how Mark relates the fear of these women in verse 8? And he says that they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Mark says nothing about the women rejoicing. But he paints us all in terms of astonishment, in terms of fear. Because you see, Mark, throughout his gospel account, has been revealing that this is the response to those who've seen the power of the Son of God. Remember earlier in the Gospel of Mark, disciples in a boat with Jesus, he's asleep and storm comes and, and they're so, so afraid. And they wake up Jesus who rebukes the wind and the waves and it's calm. It's calm, but it's not calm. Because now the disciples are more afraid than when they were in the storm. Storm was a natural occurrence. That made them afraid. But who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And then they get across the Sea of Galilee to the region of the Gadarenes. And and they're met by that demon-possessed man, possessed of legions. A man who is ferocious, screaming among the tombs and yelling out. No one could pass by naked. They bound him with ropes. They bound him with chains. They shackled him. He shattered it all. Nobody could tame him. And Jesus cast the demons out into the pigs. And news spreads. And the people come out to see what's happened. And they see the man sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And Mark says, they were afraid. And then later in Mark's gospel, we read that they're going to Jerusalem. And Jesus is going before them. And the disciples are astonished. 
to behold his majesty as he resolutely marches towards Jerusalem. It it terrifies them. And now Mark is saying that at the tomb of the risen Jesus, when the reality of the power of the Son of God has broken into this world, comes upon these women. They flee, they tremble, they're amazed, they're afraid. It's astonishing. What's the nature of a true response to the resurrection? The nature of a true response to the resurrection is not that we, that we yawn at it. True spiritual maturity and understanding is not that we somehow master this and, oh, yeah, we know about the resurrection and we've been there. And The true response, if you really understand what the resurrection is, is awe and wonderment. The power of the living God has broken in upon the earth. That the sovereign majesty of the eternal God has visited men. That the Son of God has come for sinners. That he in our nature has died our death. And that he who laid down his life has taken up his life again with power and glory. Don't let anyone tell you that the resurrection is a metaphor or a symbol. The resurrection is a reality. A reality of the power of God coming upon our lives, invading our broken world. And this power so filled the church that in a few weeks the apostles will be announcing the thing they couldn't believe before, now with great conviction, the Christ you crucified is risen. God raised him from the dead. And soon the church will be worshiping on Sundays, the first day of the week, the day of resurrection, the day that the power of the Son of God visited them and all of its saving power. It is a reality. Let us tremble. But once we see that the resurrection is a hard fact of history, a reality, we're not done. We have to ask, what does it mean? What what does it mean? You can't just know that Jesus arose. You have to know what it means. Or, Or as one writer says, we also have to ask, what kind of a savior was it that rose from the dead? Is he the same savior? The loving Redeemer who fed the hungry, cleansed the leper, healed the sick, proclaimed the gospel, and the resounding answer is yes. And so we notice, secondly, this morning, the comfort of the resurrection. The comfort of the resurrection. Now, you notice that that the angel wants to convince the women of the hard fact. He's risen. He's not here. Look at the place where they laid him. But that's not the end of the burden of his message. He says in verse 7, Go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. You have to remind yourself as you read this that, that the message of the angel is not the message of the angel. The message of the angel is the message Jesus gave the angel when he stationed him there to give to the women. And it's a great message. It's going to go before you, meet you in Galilee. Now, what's Galilee? Well, Galilee is the region up north. Galilee is the place where Christ 
began, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Galilee is the place where along the Sea of Galilee, Jesus called Simon Peter and Andrew, his brother, to come be fishers of men. He called James and John to leave their nets and follow him. But what has happened since then? What's happened since then is that these disciples called into this kingdom ministry have abandoned, have scattered from their master. But Jesus, when he tells the women through the angel to tell the disciples, I'll meet you in Galilee, Jesus is saying, I'm not finished with you. I haven't abandoned you. Because you see, back in Mark 14, Jesus had predicted right before he was arrested at Mark 15, excuse me, Mark 14, 27, Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. You're all going to stumble this very night because it's written in the prophecy, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So Christ warned them they were going to desert him. But verse 28, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And now... When the code word Galilee is used by the angel for the women to bring to the disciples, it's Christ saying, it's not just that I've been raised from the dead, but I've been raised for you. I've been raised for the church. I'm alive for you, my people. I'm alive to apply to you my saving work. I'm alive to love you and minister to you. I'm alive to forgive you and to heal you and to save you and to take you with me. And Jesus doesn't wait for his disciples to to come looking for him and to beg him to take them back. He he doesn't even leave them in doubt. I mean, he could have just sent the, 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 the women to tell the disciples he's alive and then they could, in dread, think, what is he going to do to us when he finds us? He doesn't do that. From the moment of the revelation of his resurrection, Jesus gives the message of peace. I'm for you. I'm with you. I've been raised for you. I'm your Savior. He is the same Savior, isn't he? The same Savior who gave his life on the cross is the same Savior raised from the dead, full of compassion, a Savior for sinners, with power now to free us from sin's guilt and sin's power, to reconcile us to God and to raise our bodies from the grave. And Yeah, but what about Peter? In Mark 14, when Jesus had said that, you're going to stumble, you're going to scatter, Peter said, not me. Even if I have to die with you. And what did Peter do? Well, as Christ predicted, he denied Jesus three terrible times with cursings. Jesus knows Peter's heart. He's ashamed. He's grieving. Perhaps despairing. Across that courtyard, you remember when Peter denied Jesus the third time, Jesus turned and he looked at Peter. Peter heard that rooster crow and Peter went out and he wept bitterly. Hopeless Peter. Ever since then, He's surely been thinking, there's nothing I can do to fix this. 
can't go back in time. Can't do it over. Can't repair it. He's thinking, I won't even see Jesus until the last day of the day of resurrection. But Jesus has left a special word for Peter in the mouth of the angel. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. What a compassionate Savior. What a sweet and tender Savior. That he assures Peter that the reparation Peter cannot make, he has made. Peter needs a meeting with Jesus. He needs to own up to his sin. He needs to be able to confess it and ask for forgiveness. He, he needs to hear Christ forgive him and be restored. And Jesus is saying to Peter, I don't leave you in doubt. I'm assuring you that a meeting is scheduled. And you're going to enjoy my forgiveness. Which would lead us to ask, why we delay? If you're sitting here this morning and you're putting it off, the guilt is eating you up. And you're ashamed. You're saying to yourself, I cannot fix what I've done. I give all my life to go back and redo it, and I can't redo it. What you need is a meeting with the Lord Jesus. And you need the pre-assurance that Christ meets you for a good purpose. That he's willing to forgive you and to restore you as Jesus does in the Gospel of John. What a glorious Savior. It's not just the fact of the resurrection, he's alive. But it's the comfort of the resurrection, he's alive for us. To minister grace to us. To schedule meetings with us. To call us to come to him. And to confess our sin. And to hear his pardon. And if we say, well, I can't go back, Lord, I can't go back and redo it, then he says, it's all right, because I already did. I've already lived your life. I already obeyed all the commandments in your place. I already kept the whole law of God. I did it for you. I give you my righteousness. And if we say, well, I've done so much damage, I've done such an awful thing, I've hurt other people. Jesus says, but... Your sin is not sovereign. And I am. Peter's sin, his denial is not sovereign. Peter didn't lead people into hell by his denial. But instead, Christ the sovereign one is bringing people into heaven. This is the comfort of the resurrection. But once we've seen the fact of the resurrection and the comfort of the resurrection, we're still not done because the Lord wants to impress upon us in this account the the transformed service that, that comes into our lives now if we have union with the living Lord Jesus. And so I invite you to consider that finally this morning. And here I invite you to compare the beginning of the account to the end of the account. 
The account begins with women seeking to serve Jesus by performing a great act of love and devotion. And don't let anybody say that the, that the Bible demeans women. Women stand out here. They shine. They're at the foot of the cross. They're, they're there to minister to Jesus' body. The women take the lead and outshine the men here. But you notice something's not right. Because they're on the way to the tomb to minister to a dead body. Saw Jesus dying on the cross, and I'm sure they thought, if only we could do something for him. They saw Joseph hastily bury Jesus, and they thought, ah, we, we wish we could do more, but the Sabbath, the sun's going down. But now, this morning, they're on the way to the tomb, and we're going to do something for Jesus, whom we love. And they're wrestling with the question, who's going to roll away the stone? And so they're really looking at the whole situation as this, we are alive, Jesus is dead. We, the living ones, will minister to Jesus, the dead one. They don't think to pray to Jesus to move the stone, that's for sure. Can you imagine these ladies? I'm sure it would have taken a long time, but maybe years down the road they might be working together, canning peaches or something, and, and say, do you remember that? We were so anxious about getting those spices, about pooling our money and buying those perfumes. And and we were so anxious about removing that stone. Wasn't that silly? We thought we were alive and he was dead. But he was already alive and ahead of us, preparing an angel to speak to us, preparing to meet us on the road preparing to come to his disciples. He was ministering to us. You know, Psalm 115 says that the nations worship gods of of wood and stone that have eyes that can't see and ears that can't hear, hands that can't help you. And all those who worship such gods become like them dead but psalm 115 says our god is in heaven he does whatever he pleases and that's the message here you see our lord jesus is risen from the dead he does whatever he pleases but sometimes we serve him as if he's dead we can sing i serve our risen savior but jesus might stop us and say really are you serving a risen savior or a dead savior in the way you serve. Serving Jesus as if you have to do all these things to win God's favor, you have to repair all the breaches before Christ can accept you, then you're serving a dead Savior. Are you serving in your own strength? I've got to do this, then you're serving a dead Savior. Are you serving without prayer? Then you're serving a dead Savior. Paul told the Athenians in Acts 17, God who made the world and everything in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all breath, life, all things. In Christ, that's fulfilled. Christ does not dwell in tombs carved by men's hands nor is he served by ladies' hands as if his dead body needed to be spruced up 
since he is life and he is breath and he gives salvation to all his people. To serve a living Savior. If this morning we're serving in our own strength, we're serving for our own namesake, or our hearts are filled with all kinds of anxieties, we're worried about all kinds of questions. If we have to do it and we have to move this stone, Jesus proclaims the news I'm alive. Who are you serving? My dead body? If the thing that fills our gas tank is a relationship with a person or the purchase of a new possession or a substance we put in our body like comfort food or alcohol or drugs, if that's our God, then we're not serving a living Savior. Christ is calling us to a new service. And that's what he converts his people to. Ladies come to serve a dead Jesus. They flee the tomb to serve the living Jesus. They get a message. They get a recommission. Ladies, you can set your spices aside, but here's something you can carry. Take the message to the disciples that Jesus is alive, that Jesus will forgive them, that Jesus will recommission them. You don't need to bury Christ's scent of death with your perfumes But you can extinguish the scent of death in the world by the fragrance of Christ's life. And that's the message Christ gives his disciples when he meets them in Galilee, when he ascends into heaven, and he commissions them to go into all the world and proclaim the crucified and risen one. And that's the message Christ has given to us as church. When we set aside our idols, when we quit depending on our own strength, when we quit thinking, I'm the living one and dead Jesus needs my help. When we lay that all aside, Christ doesn't say, I don't need you, I don't want you. He says, here, I love you. Let me employ you in a way that glorifies me. And he gives to his church a glorious message to call a world away from dead idols to know the living Lord Jesus. He gives the church a message of hope. You know, brothers and sisters, there's people today who, who, don't, who can't even conceive that there could be any possible way that what's happened in their life to them or what they have done in life could ever be rectified. There's no hope. And we have the message of hope. That the power of the Son of God has come among men. has died for their sins and risen. This is the message the world needs. And so all the more, all the more quickly, let us cast away the service of the dead Jesus to put on the service to the living Jesus and his power, to quit worrying about questions that don't matter and complexities that are not ours to solve, to do the thing Christ has called us to do, to bring the glad tidings. J.C. Ryle says, let us leave this passage with a determination to open the door of mercy very wide to sinners in all our speaking and teaching and religion. And indeed, if Christ is risen, then he's risen not just for us, but for every last one whom he will call to himself. And it's our joy as the people of God to spread that glorious message of good cheer. The fact of the resurrection, 
to reality. The comfort of the resurrection. He's alive for you. The service of the resurrection. No more waiting upon a dead body. But live in his power. The power of Christ. To spread the good news of Christ. Until the day of his coming. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Risen and ascended on high. To you our hearts soar. Forgive us for serving ourselves. Forgive us for treating you as if you were dead. Forgive us for relying upon our own powers and serving our own names. Oh Lord, we thank you for your mercy, for your compassion upon Peter, and upon all of us sinners. We thank you for a renewed service, and we pray that we prove faithful. Empower us by your life, and let our hands and our voices bring you honor. In Jesus' name, amen.